This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15. S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 273 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I am so excited to bring to you this next guest because he is an expert in an area that I felt completely underprepared for as a paramedic, and uh, I'm sure many of you out there are probably going to feel the same. Now, my guest is Dr. Ben Abo, and he is not only an emergency physician with a history of working in pre-hospital medicine, um, he is also the medical director for the USAR Task Force 1 and Venom 1 and 2. So we really, really explore the world of snakes, of snake bites, of presentations, of medical interventions, and a host of other areas. Not only is he fascinating, he's actually pretty damn funny as well, so you're going to enjoy this episode a lot. Before we get to the interview, if you could just take a moment and go to your podcast app. I ask this every single time we do a recording. And the reason being, if you leave a rating, if you leave a five-star rating, leave a review, obviously subscribe, it makes this podcast more visible. My goal is to get all this free content to every single ear hole on the planet that needs to hear it. So the other way you can do that is use your social media and share these episodes. I post a little promo video every time they come out, um, share those, tell people, send emails, use it as part of your training department. This is a free library for you for us to make our profession and ultimately the world a better place. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Ben Abo. Enjoy. Dr. Abo, I just want to say thank you so much for not only taking the time to come on the podcast, but doing it so late at night so we could get it done. So firstly, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Brilliant. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today, I am actually in, who would have thought, home in uh, southwest Florida. Brilliant. Which is a new home to me. 
All right. So just before we get into this, I want to start at the very beginning where you were born and all that stuff. But I know that you also work up near me in Gainesville. So kind of geographically, where where are you based now? Where's, where's home base for you? So as of fairly recently, my home base, uh, for the most part, still overall Florida, but home base is Southwest Florida in Benita Springs uh, between Fort Myers and Naples. Brilliant. All right. So starting at the very beginning, where were you born? And then what was your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings? So I was born in South Jersey, right outside of uh, Philadelphia in a town called Cherry Hill in New Jersey. Um, exit four for those of us that base things off of exits like uh, most Jersey folk. Um, I have one younger brother. I'm the only one in medicine in my family. My brother is actually uh, he's two and a half years younger, so he was three grades behind me, which sucked for him in high school. I was a senior. He was a freshman. My mom started working at the high school that year. Um, but he's actually in music management. And uh, my parents, my dad's a C- CPA from Long Island. My mom uh, studied drama and she was working at the high school during my senior year. Otherwise, she just kind of did some odds and ends and mostly uh, did a lot of active stuff with my brother and I. Um, and I grew up in, like I said, Jersey. And I started volunteering on the ambulance uh, with Mount Laurel EMS, the town next to where I grew up. Uh, the day after I turned 16 was my first shift. Really? Now, what was it, without having medicine in your family, what was it that made you so interested in it? I, you know, I don't know. Everyone thought, I even thought that I was going to study music. I was, I was everything music, the performance and writing and composing and just drums and piano, everything was just, everything was based around music, but I've always been, number one, accident prone. Uh, number two, I, you know, even with my toy cars and micro machines and all that, I had my fleet of emergency vehicles and I was always kind of drawn to it. Um, and my always just drawn to helping people and doing stuff, not to mention just it was a cool thing. And uh, I remember freshman year of high school, I was walking after school and I saw someone, this other kid, uh, putting on a jumpsuit, like an overall coverall jumpsuit. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like, uh, putting on your coveralls to work at a gas station or something like in the school. And, uh, he's like, no, I volunteer in an ambulance. Uh, next time I'm like, what are you talking about? Don't you have to be older to do that? He's like, no. And he was a little older than me. So he actually took me to the station. Um, and I was walking around when I was 15 and, um, looking at the bling bling and the listen to the woo woos and see all the equipment and everything. And just my jaw dropped. And, uh, they, I remember, I remember exactly who was there and they're like, so what do you think? I'm like, this is awesome. Like, so you're going to join them? Like, um, me, like I'm looking around, like, what, are they talking to me or the guy behind me? Um, so I went through the process and, uh, got into it and certified as CPR and, approved and literally my first shift was the day after i turned 16 that's brilliant i've never heard that story before of someone volunteering in ems specifically so young yeah it was uh it was interesting because mount so south new jersey is a two-tiered system where it's all bls municipality based and there's county-wide hospital-based als and chase cars um and mount laurel itself is a large township i want to say like 
30 something square miles, 35 square miles. It was district 36. So I don't know if it was actually 36 square miles just out of coincidence, but it was actually a combination then of mostly volunteer and, um, some career staff. Um, fire was separate. Um, EMS had two stations. Um, fire department then had three stations. Um, and, um, fire department was combination career and volunteer. And then so were we as the, uh, for EMS and both had heavy rescue. Um, it was a very dynamic, busy, great volunteer system, uh, where we had, I mean, we had highway, we had amusement park, we had turnpike, we had residential, we had industrial airport. We had a little bit of everything there in that town. Um, and I used township very loosely as technically a township, but it was, it was pretty massive. So what's your opinion then with us being in 2020, which, you know, to me feels like Buck Roger years now from when I was little, <laughs> um, way past the back to the future time. Um, in the fact that we are such an affluent nation, yet we still rely so heavily on volunteers for these life-saving interventions. You know, there's no blanket approach to um, what's going to fit, what's going to work. Everything um, regarding medical care, emergency services, public service, it it all needs to be appropriate, not just for funding and training, but also culturally sensitive. And that that doesn't just jive with international work. Um, it needs to be appropriate for different areas because we're so diverse. We have different styles of healthcare systems, different styles of people, different abilities to do funding. And an important, really important part is also um, who's going to do the, the job and um, the funding sources and ongoing education. Just because you earn a patch doesn't mean that you still have that education and that knowledge. You have to retain that knowledge. Um, so there's just so many different things that go into it. Um, certain areas where two tiered systems are great and other places where it's like, forget it, just have all, uh, ALS and EMT or have two ALS medics or, you know, just all different sorts. Uh, very common saying we kid around and we, we, we see who always tries to claim that they were the first one. I give credit to Dr. Ron Roth, the medical director for the city of Pittsburgh, one of my greatest mentors, um, uh, it says, you know, if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. It's so diverse and kind of what needs to be done. And that's based on history um, and growth, the future at the same time. It just has to be dynamic. Right. Brilliant. Well, going back to your journey then, as a 16-year-old volunteer, what was your journey through medicine from there? From there, I, I got hooked in EMS and emergency services absolutely immediately. I couldn't even drive, and I was volunteering all the time. Once I had my permit, um, I actually uh, – my driver's permit so I could drive like with my parents and get dropped off there. I was actually the third or fourth top responder at the department because um, I did so many hours there and, and weekends and, and saw a lot of calls and just got really addicted to it. Um, and I actually was on this like cusp was, I was volunteer, but I would do some hours also with the career staff, the paid professionals, um, that were on during the weekdays. Cause I got to learn so much from them and they took me under their wings. 
Um, in fact, I'll never forget that one of the career staff who's, who's still there and is now medic, um, Michael McCord, he said, rem- when I went to college, he said, remember where you're from. And because I grew up in the town of Cherry Hill, he said, remember, you're from Mount Laurel and you're from Mount Laurel EMS. Um, so it was like that, you know, that that taking me under their wings to really kind of teach me the ways and the different things in EMS. And it just I was really good at the sciences and loved it and kind of accidentally fell into my degree program at Pitt. Um, but I just got really hooked in helping people and the 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 variety of what we have to do um, from a social aspect to a scientific aspect. Um, and just, it, it's great for ADD, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now with you being in New Jersey, then with the two tier system, was there less of a draw to become a firefighter as well? Because you could stay purely in EMS. Um, yeah. And, and part was, you know, for the fire department, my parents were like, no, you're not becoming a firefighter, but I was, I was so busy with EMS and I loved the medical side of it. I just really loved it. And the, the technical side, cause we were, we did the, a lot of the rescue and extrication, um, even either just on our own or along with the fire department. And the goal isn't just quick, get them out and get them going. It was really kind of doing it. And it was interesting because we were very close to a lot of hospitals. Um, but there were, we were far enough out where a lot of the time it, it was really ba- balanced. So even though we would have, you know, automatically if there's chest pain, the medics were, were dispatched. There were a lot of times where I'm like, Hey, what's your status? Where's your location? Okay. I'm going to make a decision. We're going to go to this hospital instead, or we'll rendezvous with this medic unit instead, or just cancel the medics. Um, versus working it. So, and I had a great relationship and learned a lot from the paramedics providing advanced life support. It was a really interesting balance because, you know, do we scoop and go? Can I provide some care? Or is it something that's like, is really like doing an EKG an IV and putting them on some O2 really going to make a difference? Or can I just bring them to the emergency department and make a difference? Um, it was a interesting balance. So, I was doing the rescue and I was learning the different aspects of what exists in EMS. I mean, we had water rescue even. We had a bike team. Um, I was doing it all, so I didn't really see the point of joining the fire service. Right. Now, did you go to medic school immediately after EMT school? Did you go back to back? So I did EMT school while I was in high school. And it was funny because New Jersey, they were going from EMTB and they added on the EMTD defibrillator but because i wasn't 18 i wasn't allowed to do the defibrillation certification i kid you not i i wasn't 18 so i was not allowed to use a semi-automated defibrillator you couldn't hit the shock button you weren't qualified I couldn't hit the, yeah it was a semi-automatic i couldn't hit the put the pads on turn it on and and hit the defibrillator button because it was like new then, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was kind of ridiculous. So I was in that realm and I actually went to college at the University of Pittsburgh and accidentally fell into a bachelor's degree in emergency medicine, which was EMS um, in one of the the main hubs of EMS globally, um, which is really interesting. And so that degree program um, – you know, and and I and I say I, I'm completely serious when I say I accidentally fell into it. Um, not like oh I just kind of lucked out. 
I really fell in love with the city of Pittsburgh and the university. And I went there and when applying for colleges, you know, it's like, what's your intended major? I'm like, oh, well, I want to be an emergency doctor at this point. And um, was the game plan or thought. And so I checked off pre-med and then I checked off, oh, emergency medicine. I didn't know what that was. And then the beginning of my sophomore year of college, I went to a regional conference called the Tools and the Talent and I met Greg Margolis, um, who at that point was one of the faculty of the degree program, who then went on to Georgetown and now at the National Registry and he's around and, and big name. But um, I met up with them and uh, just chit chat and I realized what program I was in. And I was like, whoa. So my the degree program, which is a bachelor's of science in EMS, my junior year of college was paramedic school. Oh, brilliant. And so that was my entire junior year. I took some extra like scuba and party dance, you know, <laughs> <laughs> basket about, weaving. but literally like a year and my class was mixed. So there were some people that were in the degree program with me, but there were also people that literally came from around the world to do paramedic school there at the Center for Emergency Medicine in Pittsburgh. My class, we had, uh, we had one guy from Ireland, one from Canada, one from Australia, four from Saudi Arabia, three from Iceland, um, and then all over the US. I think that was all of our international for my class, my year. So that was my junior year of college. And the whole time in college, I was volunteering very heavily um, in the outskirts of Pittsburgh um, as an EMT. So I got my paramedic my junior year of college. And then my senior year, um, which in between junior and senior, I actually did a, a prolonged stint in Ireland um, as an EMT and paramedic. The... My senior year was like leadership courses, teaching courses, um, legal issues in EMS with pa Doug Wolfberg and Steve Wirth from Paige Wolfberg and Wirth, who are big names in, in um, EMS law. Um, you know, education issues in EMS. We had a lot. Of, we have a lot of issues in EMS. Research issues and. You know, we got stuff from all these greats, Ron Stewart, Ted Delbridge, all, all these people that founded NAMSP and all these different things. I mean, Walt Stoy was my director, and he wrote the national standard curriculum for EMS, the four levels, and, and Tom Platt was there. And it just – I had a lot of great mentors there. My senior year was that, and then I also did the critical care course, the CCEMTP. So basically, you know, EMT in high school – paramedic junior year, um, senior year is CCEMTP, and then I challenged the FPC and and got all the alphabet soup instructor stuff. Um, and then that was that was undergrad for me. And then I was working the all my senior classes were um, they were scheduled in a way that all of us could have full time jobs also working in EMS as a paramedic. See, that sounds like such an amazing system. I, I went to college here, did medic school for a year, brought a two-year degree from England with me, did medic school for a year, and then still had another two years of prereqs that I could then go on and do my bachelor's. It was just so crazy. And I've talked about this before, whether it's the firefighting side or the EMS side, that if you're going to get you know, college credits, then you should do exactly what you did. You should get your medic, then your critical care, or in the firefighting side, you know, the, the, the USAR classes, you know, so that they all pertain completely to your career 
So then when you when you level up, as it were, you haven't been wasting your time on humanities and, and things that you're not going to use, but you actually gain skills. You know, it's it, it's a balance. So uh, if you take a step back and you think about what is the point of a bachelor's degree? You know, what what's the point of what we're doing? And I thought about this a lot because when I graduated from college um, and I was actually initially going to go work for Austin Travis County as a medic, but I, I knew I wanted to do more in grad school and I just didn't know what, exactly what I wanted to do, um, but I wanted to stay pre-hospital. Um, so I was so addicted to it. Um, I, I ended up faculty there at the Center for Emergency Medicine and an instructor at the University of Pittsburgh. And the, in fact, my title was coordinator of education and international emergency medicine. So I, I was in charge of like alphabet soup and helped with a bunch of stuff. But we were, when we were looking at the curriculum, which at that point there were 13 bachelor's programs around the U S, um, in EMS and, some associate's degrees and, and whatnot sprinkled around. And, you know, it's like, what makes it, why do we have certain prerequisites? What, who's doing the program? What are they doing it for? Are they stepping stones? And when you think about it, the whole point of a bachelor's degree, like why did I have to take a certain amount of math, certain amount of humanities, psychology? I mean, when I did the degree program, my prereqs included three different psychs, developmental psych, intro to psych, and... I don't know, something else. I had sociology, I had computer, all these like different things, even like a physical education requirement, which I did party dance and I did scuba. But like, why do we have to do it? And the point of a bachelor's degree is to be almost like a renaissance person. It's to be well-rounded in the arts and the humanities in math and computer to be, so that whatever your field is, you're more well-rounded as opposed to the hyper-focused Oh, this, you're going to be an EMT. Like here's super EMT. Oh, you want to be a nurse? Here's a nurse and super nurse. Like it's, it's to be a little more well-rounded. And I think that's a really important aspect, something to remember, you know, because there are a lot of people that don't know what they want to do. They don't know what kind of system they want to be part of. They don't know what they want to be when they grow up. If they want to grow up, they, they don't know a career at all. And I, I tell my, what I call my docklings, the people that I mentor or, they shadow me because they follow me around like little ducklings. Um, the I tell them more important than figuring out what you want to do is figuring out what you don't want. Um, because, you know, I, I went to college thinking that medicine was for the most part doctors, nurses, paramedics. And that was kind of that was it. That was emergency services. Right. So I, I didn't know all the different things and the different styles and there were different systems. I didn't know that there were PAs. I didn't know that there were nurse practitioners. I didn't know there was a difference between MD and DO. I didn't know that. I didn't even know until medical school that you don't even have to practice as a physician. There's different roles for even just physicians, whether they're in law, they're in insurance they're in research they are in education there's all these different things that you can do and just because it's a route that doesn't exist yet doesn't mean you can't create it so so while i i'm i'm all about seizing opportunities jumping on opportunities or otherwise creating opportunities having some of those i don't mind those other fluff courses so to speak 
if you remember that and get some good other things around it. Think about some of the people that you've worked with that just have no public speaking social skills, right? Or some of your supervisors that are just horrible educators or some of your educators, your teachers that are horrible educators. There's, there's those other skills that you're really supposed to get. And that's the point of, and historically, anthropologically, the point of a bachelor's degree as opposed to only doing apprenticeship and kind of going on, you know, we're, we're not just technicians. We, we really are practicing people. So it's kind of that, that realm. So it, it's, it's a tough balance. Like it's a little, you know, yes, I completely agree with you shouldn't sit around and just kind of do stuff. You should take advantage, but the other courses are actually a little bit important to a certain extent, not calculus. I never had to take it, never (laughs) will take it. It's useless. But, um, but you know, at the, you know, at the same time, my prerequisites had to take physics and I, I was a paramedic and doing tech rescue and stuff. And when I was taking physics too, and I'm like, okay, so I can think about the, the laws of physics and how it applies to rescue services when, you know, free falling in the velocity, I'm like, okay, when a patient jumps off a bridge, right before they smack something hard, you know, what's the force <laughs> you know, and like trampoline and angles. And so it actually comes into, um, comes into play. And yes, I've used the Pythagorean theorem for a rescue. Like, (laughs) so, so it's a balance. It's, it's kind of interesting, but I, I do solely believe that, um, we shouldn't become stagnant. We should always be, be stretching, seeing, and kind of, um, one of my favorite taglines is screw status quo, which screw isn't the word I usually use, but (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I agree with with the some of the prereqs I did. Like, I did speech, and that ended up carrying over very well to the podcast. Actually, I did in my classes presentations on that I was going to start a podcast, and then, funnily enough, it got the momentum going for this. But I've watched my wife, who's just finished her very last prereq for optometry school, doing like you were saying, not just you know calculus and trig, but I mean these high, even these crazy level, the physics one, two you know, chemistry, organic chemistry, organic chemistry too. And it's like, she's going to be testing eyes. You know what I mean? At what point do you say, okay, that's enough, you know, broad spectrum prereqs. Let's cut this down a bit and get these people into the schools and start learning the profession they're wanting to enter. It's a tough balance to try to decide that because, you know, you can strict say, here's how you test eyes. Here's you do vision, this and that. But if you don't give some of that background basic knowledge, um, how do uh, some people go and figure out groundbreaking discoveries? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a balance. Yeah. Like I, I don't like all the micro and the chemistry and like covalent and monovalent bonds and this and that. I'm like, what the heck? What? I don't care about that, but that helps me problem solve to figure out some other things where I'm doing antidotes or figuring out antivenoms and why one might work and trying to balance. And it's, it, not everything fits a strict algorithm. So it's a tough balance to say where, how do you say when enough is enough of the fluff stuff and the other stuff, just learn to do what you're going to do. So it's, it's everything in moderation, including moderation. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned going to Ireland. So was that when you were first introduced to snakes? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, pretty much. You know, it's it's so funny. I had an absolute phobia of snakes until 
fairly recently. Like I, after working with the vent, starting work with the venom teams, that's when I got over my fear of snakes. I am not exaggerating. That is a absolute honest truth. Like I'm not one that's, I love wildlife and I love nature and thinking green and stuff, but no, you know, keep the snakes away. There's a medic in, um, North Carolina who kid around, like we saw a very harmless black racer snake and I like went running for the hills and he still makes fun of me for that. And so I always try and give him a t-shirt and stuff, but you know, um, definitely, um, that was Ireland was 2002 ish. And, uh, that was definitely well before I started doing, um, having any interest in venom and snakes. <laughs> All right. So then what was that journey? Cause I'm intrigued for someone that's not, you know, um, into is it serpentology. Is that the right word? So, uh, those that are interested in snakes and all, um, it, it's herpetology. That's right. Like reptiles. Yeah. Herpetology. Um, and so basically, you know, I, you know, flash forward, I was doing medicine stuff. I did med school in San Francisco, um, at Toro university. I took a year off and I lived in Africa and I started a nonprofit and ambulance service there. Um, and then I did a residency in Miami Beach, which is a four-year emergency medicine residency. And I knew the whole reason I went to medical school is just to be an EMS physician, um, basically modeled after my mentors in Pittsburgh and, and internationally. And um, while I was in residency, my residency was basically the opposite of EMS strong um, and EMS friendly. Um, but I was very active still in lecturing and, and doing rides and stuff. And I was hanging out at air rescue for Miami Dade fire rescue. And I was, that's where they kept the venom bank for Miami Dade's venom one. And, uh, they had been established for a while at that point. We just had our 22nd anniversary in September, um, for venom one. And I, I was talking with Captain Fob and Lieutenant Lisa Wood and Lieutenant Scott Mullen, and they just, you know, were teaching me about, um, uh, you know, wildlife and, and envenomations. And then when I was doing my rotations for toxicology, I really realized how much misinformation is out there, you know, and with proper education um, and mentorship, so to speak, you can really guide and change the outcome of someone's healthcare. If they're envenomed by a snake, you don't need to kill it. You don't need to chase it around. You don't need to do crazy stuff. Um, and by golly, our textbooks were not up to date. All of our textbooks. And when you think about it, and all these physicians are like, Oh, there's two types of venom. You either bleed to death or you're paralyzed to death. And it's a lot more complex than that. And so, I went on this educational rampage of wanting to improve wildlife and improve patient care and helping deal with venom um, and envenomations. And I feel, you know, I was very into austere medicine already at that point with the disaster team and international development and thinking that wilderness EMS mindset. And it just went on from there. And I didn't get over my fear of actual snakes. I had a very healthy respect for venom 
um, because the importance of it as part of the ecosystem and we get medicines and we get drug tests and IR tests and blood testing and different things like that um, from Venom and modeled after things. And then I started Venom 2, the second Venom unit in Lake County. Um, and when I got them certified by Florida Fish and Wildlife to handle venomous snakes, um, I literally like woke up, showered, shaved, had a cup of coffee, had a phobia of snakes coming near me, and then over a couple hours got certified by FWC to handle them. And now I've got like personalized snake hooks as a gift from Venom One and another like, you know, I'd someone calls, I'll I'll haul, I'll I'll move safely, whatever needs to be done. Brilliant. You know, it's funny because when I went to Orange County, which would have been two thousand eight. This is Florida, Orange County? Florida, Orange County, yes. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I came from, from California. I worked there for a few years when I got back over here. And you know, the, we're going through the rig. I'm a brand new probie. I'm like, all right, what's this? What's this? And then there's this little like giant scissory looking thing. I'm like, what's this? And they go, oh, that's uh, the snake stick. I'm like, why, <laughs> why is it on a fire engine? And they go, oh, yeah, they, they call us to get snakes out of, uh, out of houses. I'm like, and... Um, you know, when do we get the training for that? And they're like, oh, we don't have training. We just go and, and I don't even know why, because obviously they had a full like, animal department, but yeah, the firemen, fire, you know, fire, excuse me, firefighters were required to do snake removals, I guess, uh, you know, at a pinch when no one else was able to come. And I remember thinking the same thing. I'm like, this does not seem like a good idea that you, you know, you just get firefighters with no training whatsoever to just go in with the snake stick on the chance that they can actually grab on these things and take it out safely. It's hold, hold my beer without the beer. Safety third, safety third. <laughs> so we'll start in the very beginning then. So from a fire department, first responder um, perspective, is, is that not picking on Orange County, but is, is that overall a skill you think that should be handled by first responders or should that be exclusively the, uh, you know, the animal department? You know, it, there's some other EMS physicians, and we, we have this uh, text chain where we're always talking, bouncing back and forth and, and going through scenarios, and so often we laugh whenever we say it depends. Um, you know, and, and it almost goes to Brian Bledsoe recently brought up, like, should we have a badge, like, as a paramedic? Are we healthcare or are we public service? Or we're really this morph. So it, it depends on the service and depends on where it is. Um no matter what, if someone's going to have a tool or a skill, um, you better have the training on how to do it safely in the right way. Um, a tool in the toolbox is not a tool unless you know how to use it. Um, so, you know, in certain areas where it's really busy, it might not be an opportune time to let animal control or do it. Or at the same time, we might get a call and we don't have time to like wait for animal control or something like that. So why not train us to do it? Similar to, I'm not a cop, but I was very glad as an 18-year-old kid that I learned how to safely disarm or disable a, and put a zip tie through a gun um, if I was on scene. You know, I, I might not be able to wait for police to take care of it. I might be able. To, I might have to, um, just to make the situation safer. Uh, so really, it, it depends. And in Florida, 
you you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, every state's different with the laws, and people have a lot of weird pets. And then good old hashtag Florida man. <laughs> um, yeah, there's yeah. some interesting people. For you. Okay, so I mean, that's the thing. I think it's something that, you know, wasn't, you know, a, a we could definitely try. And we, I remember a couple of state removals that we went on, but um, I think that's the key, like you said. If, you, if you're going to have a piece of equipment on, on there and you're going to ask a department to do a certain thing, then before they ever step foot on that rig, they need to have had the training and understand, you know, just, just the basics of how it's going to work. Cause we had no training at all. We just had a little sticky thing and try and grab the angry venomous snake snake. And then what do you do with it? You kind of fling it into the road, you know? So it was, it really was kind of comedic really. Yeah. And even if they're like, you know, there's some place where I've lectured and they're like, we got three types of snakes here, boots, belts, and wallets. We'll just kill it and blah, blah, blah. And like, 22 and i'm like no that's not right for the environment and people think that it you're safer like i don't need you to bring the flipping snake to the er to treat it and and even a head a, deca- a dead snake can still kill you yeah i've heard of that you know people getting uh getting bit or well, envenomated after the the head's been cut off yep absolutely yeah, now that's an interesting point because you mentioned about that. If we bring a snake into an ER, it's kind of like bringing a hazmat patient into an ER. You know, you, you're compromising the whole ER. So with the technology, um, the the photograph of the snake is the best option. Yeah, honestly, we're it, this is in the U.S. Like, if if you can get a picture safely, great. And if you can't, don't worry about it. Just get them to the care because myself and other specialists and um trained people like most put not all poison control centers are created equal but you know the the tampa and miami poison control centers and uh people like spencer green nick brandehoff we we know how to assess and deal with snake bites and it honestly it doesn't matter in the u.s we have a couple anti-venoms to use and that the actual species doesn't really matter as much and uh, we'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> um, so if you take a picture, great. Um, Cause what's going to happen is if you have a picture and I know it's not venomous, then I'm just going to do wound care and say, bye Felicia or bye Felipe. <laughs> uh, bye Florida man. If I'm not sure well, I think it says, then I'm going to watch you and make sure it's a dry bite versus treat you. So you don't need to bring, if you can get a picture of it, great, but don't get hurt catching it, bringing it, killing it. Just let it be. Right now, I heard you mention as well, like what is the time period before you can even see symptoms from a snake bite? It, again, it depends um, on the species and how much venom injected into you. Um, you know, if we're talking from an, a the, a U.S. like domestic Florida, we do have the coral snake, which is mostly neurotoxic. And other than some, if you get a severe envenomation, like a lot of venom, um, you'll have local pain, paresthesias or tenderness. Like you can tap on the bite site. You won't even see fang marks or bite marks. It can just be a scratch, and it'll be tender there if you tap. You might syncopize and be vomiting like a couple, two patients that I had, but you might only have some tenderness in that area 
And then all of a sudden, nine and a half, ten hours later, then you start having central paralysis. Um, other snakes like the um, – you'll have local pain and tenderness that's actually spreading up in some local tissue changes. But some, you'll only have pain and tenderness and hemolytic changes, and you won't see any local skin changes until the next day. The cane break, the timber rattlesnake, which is up north like Stark and the Panhandle and stuff, that timber, the cane break, man, um, it's potent, It's mostly neurotoxic, so you, you know, hemodynamic instability, autonomic instability, and just bleeding out and tachycardic and hypotensive and just out. And you're like, where's the where's the bite mark? You have to look very carefully, and you don't see any swelling until the next day. So it depends. <laughs> right. So so I heard you mention as well. So you'll take most most bites that you have any suspect whatsoever there was you know some sort of puncture and actually observe for 24 hours because of that large window yeah i'll i'll if if i think it's a coral or i know it's a coral i they are monitored for 24 hours um with neurochecks central neurochecks uh like the central nervous system every hour if it's a pit viper then i'll tend to watch them uh, about eight to 10 hours. Um, I won't admit them. I'll just watch them. And if they show any signs of animation or any progression, then I'll, I'll give them the antivenom and then they're admitted and I make them, I keep them until it's resolved for 24 hours to make sure it doesn't have a recurrency. Right. Cause that's something that I can tell you right now. I, I, I had a snake bite in, um, when I was doing my medic ride-alongs in Ocala here, I want to say they got the antivenom. I think it was Crofab um, sent down from Shans, if my memory serves me right. Um, and that was a very you know, laborious process too, all, all the turning of all the vials before it was actually ready to be given. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea that just because the patient wasn't presenting then that possibly hours later they might go into some sort of uh, you know trouble. Yeah. You know, the, the first snake bite I ever saw treated, um, I was just talking about this the other day too, is when I was a medic in Pittsburgh and, um, there was a woman that was drunk and she was envenomated by a cobra. And I just happened in the ER and Dr. Ken Katz, toxicologist, and, a, and then another mentor of mine, Stephanie Gonzalez, an amazing ER doc up in Pittsburgh. She, uh, they had this woman that was drunk and she got bit by a cobra and said, ah, maybe it's, you know, um, a dry bite, but then she became symptomatic suddenly and cobras are not indigenous to Pittsburgh. Penguins are if you're a hockey fan, but, um, and the zoo didn't have antivenom because they didn't have cobras. So they had to get the antivenom from Philadelphia, um, and that, you know, that process and seeing them try to like mix the vials and do different things. And that was the first snake bite I ever saw treated. <laughs> right. Well, for the layman, because again, like being from England, we have one snake and it's the adder, which is basically like a glorified earthworm with a ninja <laughs> suit on. <laughs> so totally harmless. You know, it just kind of wraps around your arm and looks at you. Um, so, I mean, literally when I came over here, I had no idea at all. Um, and I hear, you know, oh, if the, the head is this shape, then it's, you know, it's this. And, you know, like I heard you talking on some of the other podcasts, there's little rhymes like, you know, I, I 
I love big butts and I cannot lie means it's envenomous or whatever the rhyme is. But (laughs) (laughs) but I've already heard you also say there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, nonsense within that. So for the layman, which I'm sure is probably a lot of the people listening, what are the types of snakes? What are the types of, of venomous reactions, you know, in general for for the medics out there that are you know are going to glean a little bit of information from this? Well, number one, just consider every snake to be venomous. And if you leave it alone, it's going to go away. They are just acting defensively. They don't want to bite you. Um, they don't hunt you. They're not going to chase you. Um, that's just all completely disproven. Um, the, the notions of, oh, a triangular head... Um, it's very hard to distinguish, um, really, if it's a truly triangular head. In general, sure, in general, they have bigger triangular-shaped heads. In general, they are fatter, wider. And this is the pit vipers in North America that I'm talking about. If it has a rattle, it's definitely a pit viper. But there's also pit vipers that don't have rattles, like the water moccasin or the copperhead. So they tend to be fatter and be like snake, 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 and then suddenly tail, um, barely anything. Um, but that, that can be really hard to actually distinguish, um, especially if it's wrapped up or you don't even see it or you step on it and different things like that. Um, so consider them all venomous. There's a lot of people that are like, well, it's got a pattern, so it's venomous. No, like water moccasins aren't black. They just they become darker, but they actually have a pattern to it. Um, the, the notion of, oh, look at, you have to look close. And if it has elliptical eyes, it's venomous. Yeah, it's true. But if you're that close, you're too flipping close to the snake. <laughs> I right? was going to say the same thing. If the mouth is wide open, how are you going to tell what shape the head is? Yeah. I mean, if they're, you know, a fang's a fang, like you can't tell the, like, oh, look for the heat seeking pits. That's why it's called a pit viper. All right. You're too close. Oh, well, if you flip the snake over and it has split scales from the cloacus which is near the tail no you have first off you're way too close and you owe it dinner first before you turn it over (laughs) it's rear end like you're just too close so that doesn't make any sense um in general there are some rules that will help guide you but um if you treat and consider all of them as venomous um and give them respect you're good you're really good with the coral you know that that rhyme you know, roses are red, you know, red and yellow, kill a fellow. That only works in North American coral and not even all of them. Um, and um, they all have black and yellow heads like they're a Steelers fan. But, you know, you would think that this red, yellow, and black thing would really bounce, like pop out at you when it's in the leaves or something. They, they're really hard to see. So, and then the way they coil up, they don't, coil up like a pit viper but they're coiled up like a ball so you can't even really tell where the head is because it's just this round little black thing so is it a stripe or is it the head i don't know (laughs) so it it can be really difficult to to appreciate it um so in general treat them all with respect and stay away from it um and if you can take a picture and you can you can there's Facebook groups there's, and then I'm part of, you can text the Venom 1 or Venom 2 team or Joel Kiefer or myself, and we'll tell you, yes, it's venomous or it's not. 
the ones that are actually skilled in in identifying those things. Okay, so in general, let's say you don't even know what what bit the patient. As a, a medic, what kind of signs and symptoms are we looking for, especially life threatening, you know, en route to the hospital? Great question. So, so for the most part, there's all there's tons of different toxins. It's just a chemical cocktail or a toxin cocktail of the venom. But there are in general three things that can kill you that we're really trying to fight. Um, or cause permanent pain, permanent disability, or permanent disfigurement. Hemolytic issues, neurotoxic issues, and uh, cytotoxic issues. So cytotoxic, it, you have skin or tissue breakdown. There might be swelling. There might be redness. A very good marker, like if I get bit in the finger, and because I'm a Florida man, <laughs> grabbing something I shouldn't, um, I might only have local wounds like redness or swelling or a little bit of bleeding or discoloration up to like my palm of my hand, but I might have a lot of pain up higher. And then if you take your finger and you go down my arm, it's actually tender above my elbow. That's actually a great marker of local effects because the, the venom is actually destroying cells and muscle and it spreads up lymphatically. Um, so you look for any signs of local things. You're also going to look for if there's any systemic signs. So it could be, you know, altered mental status, hypotension, vomiting, retching. And I got into an argument and I, you know, once and the poison center, I won't say which one, but they, they were like, well, you, you know, the, the kid was probably just in pain and scared. So he threw up. You know what? I work in the emergency department for peds. They throw up if they have a, some sickness, but they won't keep like vomiting despite Zofran over and over just because they're scared. That doesn't happen. So they said this one kid that wasn't envenomed. I'm like, because they thought he wasn't vomiting. Well, they didn't ask the right question. He was sitting there retching, but there's nothing left to vomit. That's a systemic sign, right? syncope, chest pain, shortness of breath. Those are systemic signs. So you look for that. And then it's blood work um, or bleeding where there shouldn't be. Um, so those are the, the three kind of sets. Um, and the neurotoxic stuff, other than vital signs, hemodynamic stability, it's looking for um, central. You start with like bulbar symptoms where trouble swallowing, trouble opening your eyes, having ptosis. They'll complain of double vision or you do your pupil assessment and their eyes look like, you know, chameleons where they go in different directions where an eye is partially paralyzed. And that's what actually causes that's called disconjugate gaze. And that's what actually causes double vision or diplopia because the pupils aren't lined up. And is that because it's affecting the brain specifically? It's because it's affecting the brain and the the cranial nerves. Right. Your, your cranial nerves, three, four, and six, are your uh, oculomotor nerves. Interesting. So then are there any uh, elements for peds specifically that you have to be careful for? Um, just that um, really, you know, kids are very susceptible, um, you know, because of where they're playing, they're not looking and things like that, or they're much more curious. Um, but otherwise it's all the same thing. And I, I am more aggressive to treat with antivenom because 
not many people die, luckily, in the U.S. from envenomation, but they have permanent pain, permanent disfigurement, and or disability. Like, so this, this, you know, I had a kid that was envenomated by coral, and he had delayed treatment, and he couldn't play at recess for seven months. Seven months. My God. So imagine, because he had partial paralysis of one of his eyes, whenever he would run, he would, you subconsciously look down and he would fall over because he would have double vision all of a sudden. So imagine for you as a paramedic, if you couldn't, you didn't have function of your hand or permanent pain, you know, stuff like that. So, but with kids specific, sure, I might be a little more aggressive to treat and make sure um, early on. Uh, but also, there's no pediatric dose to antivenom. Oh, really? It's it's all, um, you know, we snakes don't come with meters, so we don't know how much venom they injected, and snakes don't measure things up um, in terms of a kid versus an adult human. So we are we are molecule for molecule, protein for protein, trying to deactivate venom, and so it's it's the same within. So it's not weight based. It's not age based. It's clinical decision making, and there's no pediatric dose. So, so titrate to effect kind of thing. Exactly. Right. So, how does what is it about antivenom? Because I mean, this this worked very well. The the crofab that I I saw on that one patient that we had. What is it? You know, how how does it work, and what is it about it that is so effective on some of our snakes native to the U.S.? So it's it's pretty neat. Like so, crofab itself. It, there. So first off. Historically, before 1999, before Crofab, there was a product called from Wyeth Drug Company that was famous for more side effects. Crofab came out in 99, and they underwent a lot of studies. And it's interesting because Crofab itself is not made with horse serum. It's made with sheep. And what they do to get the um, proteins, because an eastern diamondback from the panhandle its venom is going to be different than the Eastern Diamondback in Miami. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into the different proteins that are in it. So what they do is they they select four species of snakes, a pygmy, uh, a water moccasin, a diamondback, and a they, they have different species. And they do it from each species. They also extract venom from all over the country. Um, from specific plate like uh, um, extraction places, but the snakes are from different geographical regions to get as much variety as possible. They dehydrate all the venom and then they send it actually to Australia and it's injected into sheep and the sheep develop antibodies. And it's all still, they're basically making four different antivenoms at this point. Then they take the blood and they separate the antibodies and then they send it to England and they cleave the antibodies that are like Y-shaped. They cut the arms off. And so you have this little protein that's very specific to the toxins in the venom of North American snakes. And that's what you're injecting into somebody. You're directly giving them antibodies to specifically the venom. So it's very small protein. It fits to different places. It has a strong affinity to bind to the venom of all of our snakes in North America. And that's why it works so well. 
Now, as of last, um, it's very, you know, very safe, very effective. As of last year, October 2018, um, there's a second anti-venom on the market that's FDA approved for pit vipers in the U.S. But it's only, right now, it's only approved by the FDA for use for rattlesnakes. So if I don't know what kind of snake bit somebody, I can't use it. Crowfab I know works for, it's expensive, but you get what you pay for. A little bit of investment up front is a shorter ICU stay back to workforce. Um, I haven't had the opportunity personally to use Anavip. Um, I, I will use it if uh, I have the opportunity, if I know it's a rattlesnake bite, but if it's a water moccasin or copperhead right now, theoretically it should work, but I don't know. So we're not allowed to really use it yet for that. Wow. Uh, but Crofab is a, is a great product. There, there's, there's a lot of globally, there's a lot of crappy antivenoms and there's a lot of great antivenoms. So he is having specialists understand, um, what, what's best and are, is it still best just cause it was best in 2018 doesn't mean it's the best thing in 2021. Yeah. But that's amazing. So the Crofab is, you know, you, you're taking the samples of the the uh, snakes here in Florida and you're sending it to Australia, then it's sending it to England. So that literally circumnavigated the globe by the time it gets to a patient back here in the US. Yeah. Incredible. But they, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible process that's painstaking and I get why it costs, but, you know, that's like nothing. That's pennies in the bucket um, in the long run. <laughs> yeah well i mean what's what's the life worth i had a guy that was that was bit by a cane break he was on three pressers blood pressure 50 over 30 tachycardic in the 160s um bleeding out everywhere um and until he got and then he started to code like until he got any venom um you know he was about to die and we treated him and he was able to go back to work eight days later. Back to work, not a cashier. He's a manual labor person. He raising his grandkids. He went back to work, not permanent pain, not permanent disability. He was able to work. <laughs> That's incredible. Incredible. Well, then speaking of, of, of interventions, so basing my knowledge of snake bite first aid, <laughs> Up to this point, what I understand is I'm going to wrap a belt around someone's yeah. limb and then I'm going to get my lips as close to their groin as I can and suck out all the venom because that's what I've seen in the cowboy movies. Is that right? <laughs> that is absolutely, absolutely wrong, wrong, wrong. When I did the prolonged field care um, podcast, uh, they kept, he kept saying about using a tourniquet and I just like gave him the stare. I'm like, no! <laughs> did a like tongue in cheek joke, but um, yeah, no, absolutely. So the best thing, and I find a lot of protocols. You know, I'll gladly review any, but I see that are a lot not up to date. First off, as soon as you can, you want to get the person safe. If you can identify with the picture, great. If not, just keep them safe. Keep yourself safe. Number two, remove all constricting clothing or uh, jewelry immediately. Don't wait to have to finagle to get jewelry off. Number three, 
you want to, if you can, you're going to elevate as high as you can the affected limb or whatever. Now, it's not always easy to elevate like a leg while you're trying to walk somebody out of the woods <laughs> or out of their backyard, but as much as you can. We don't keep it level at the heart anymore. You don't keep it lower because you're afraid that the toxins are going to get to the heart. No, we just, if you can, you elevate it. If you can't elevate it, just keep it level of the heart. You immobilize it, um, which is going to help with the pain, and you're going to keep them calm as well. And then you're going to mark. Um, the way I like to do it is I'm going to mark, circle the bite marks or the scratches if I can. The leading edge of skin changes, like redness or swelling, the leading edge of pain and the leading edge of tenderness. And if, and I'm going to do that every 10 to 15 minutes. And those are the vital signs of that. You need to trend of an envenomation. Um, we don't do fasciotomies. We don't do amputations. We don't do tourniquets. We don't use tasers. We don't hook up a car battery and electrocute somebody. We don't use a stun gun. We don't cut and suck or use any of those venom extractors. All that stuff just does more damage um, and doesn't help at all. Brilliant. Well, I'm so glad you 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 know clarified that because I think it's definitely, if most of us are being honest, an area that we really don't have that much experience in and probably do resort to some of the things that we've seen on the screen. So to to hear that, especially you know like like you're saying the elevation and not worrying about the heart, but basically speed to the ER and uh, getting the anti-venom is, is, is the focus and obviously maintaining vital signs with fluids and whatever else needs to be done. Yeah, just always remember how like not realistic most TV is. The most realistic medical show, of course, is Scrubs. And the I know that there was one like soap opera-ish type thing program and they treated a snake bite appropriately and it was realistic and i know because they called me and asked me to verify every step like what would happen with this what 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 should the proper care of this be and how would they react so i and i saw the episode um i actually flew out to california to be an extra in it um also but uh i know that for snake bites they also did it right they even said like, oh, suck it out. Like, no, you're not supposed to. <laughs> um, so they actually included that too, which was pretty cool. Excellent. All right. Well, I want to get to the TV work you've done as well. But before we do, um, tell me about Venom 1 and 2. Excuse me, 1 and 2. Venom 1 and 2, how they were established and then, and what kind of services they offer. That that was your uh, Franklish there. There was. <laughs> um, so Venom 1 is... The, the first is kind of in it. It has an interesting history in of itself, but um, was started by Al Cruz and is my, sponsored and hosted by Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. It's the largest – it was the largest civilian anti-venom bank in the hemisphere. I have found out that it is the largest anti-venom bank, period. Um, it's for public use. Um, every, basically, every anti-venom that's useful um, we have. Um, currently, Venom 1 – um, and we work hand in hand with poison control, but uh, right now Venom One is uh, Captain Fob, Lieutenant Pr Chris Picori, uh, Lieutenant Jolene. She's new to the team along with Chris Picori and myself. Um, and 
not only will they help identify snakes and remove wildlife and move things, but will deliver to anywhere not only um, the anti-venom that's needed, but the education because people don't really know how to treat things. Um, so we might bring it by plane or helicopter or ship it. And I mean, we had, we've sent anti-venom recently for a gaboon bite to Michigan, cobra bite uh, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, cobra bite. Um, we, we really help, you know, logistics wins wars. Well, logistics also saves lives. So we bring the education um, to the bedside um, with Venom 1. Venom, and so that's down in Miami-Dade. Our jurisdiction really is global. Um, um, we have treated international bites as well as exotic bites throughout the U.S. Um, Venom 2 I started is with Lake County Fire Rescue. Lake County is right outside of Orlando, just like east, sorry, west and north. Um, we currently there house um, domestic antivenom. So we have coral antivenom and uh, uh, crotalid antivenom, plenty of crofab. Um, at the moment and go figure actually our first call ever for venom two when we started a couple years ago was actually a cobra bite that i had in tallahassee um, that was flown to me i had them fly the patient to me in gainesville and while i had venom one send up the anti-venom but it was storming so Venom 1 met Venom 2 on the side of the road, and then Venom 2 drove the anti the Cobra anti-Venom to me um, so we could get it. That was actually the first call. Um, so that's Lake County. Um, and we have a pseudo uh, Venom 3, which is the Nature Coast Anti-Venom Index, which Joel Kiefer um, has, a, has a bank kind of spread out from different people. Kind of we make phone calls and get around. He's in Nature Coast north of Tampa. Um, so we're basically spread throughout Florida with the mechanism in place to get any anti-venom anywhere. Brilliant. Now, how do uh, EMS agencies, excuse me, EMS agencies access Venom 1 or Venom 2? So they can directly call. We have the box office. Uh, sorry, the box office. I'm sitting here thinking about movies. <laughs> for, um, for everyone listening, it's 930 at night and we're both tired. So that's why we're tripping over our words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I worked a 12-hour shift today. I worked yesterday. And then I also was up till 4 in the morning writing submissions for Venom Week is actually we're hosting the biannual conference um, here in Florida for Venom Week. But uh, um. The alarm office, or dispatch, so to speak, um, um, for each is obviously 24-7. These two teams are 24-7 manned, uh, dedicated teams to this. And I have, so you can call either. Poison Control also tends to call us, but you're also welcome to call us directly. Um, And then also, I'm available. I never mind a phone call um, or text. Um, so people also call me directly as well. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll give you, so you can put online the, uh, the phone numbers to call, but call Venom one, Venom two or Dr. Abo. We'll take care of you 24 seven. Brilliant. Fantastic. All right. Well then speaking of uh, South Florida, I know you're attached to the USAR task force one as well. So tell me about your journey into that and, and the role you play there. Yeah, I, you know, I love disaster medicine and having to think. I don't want to see people hurt, but if they're going to get hurt, I want to be there um, to do something interesting. 
And I've, I'm still technically a part of DMAT, which is kind of like sitting at the MASH hospital, um, FL5. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the medical director and the lead team man- medical team manager for uh, Miami-Dade Fire Rescue's USAR team, Florida Task Force 1. Um, basically, there's different branches in the national and state disaster medical system. And Urban Search and Rescue, USAR, I love because we are... It's kind of the, we're the Swiss Army knife, uh, all hazards rescue team. I like to say we're called a task force because you give us a task, we'll get it done no matter what. Man-made, natural disaster, swift water rescue, building collapse. We'll search, we'll find, we'll identify, we'll evacuate and pull people out. Um, so the teams, and there's 26 teams throughout, federal teams throughout the United States, um, and we are one of two federal teams in Florida. Um, there's only one Florida task force one. <laughs> um, but, uh, we have a couple hundred members and that includes logistics, medical team specs, canine handlers, search specialists, uh, rescue specialists, engineers, a physician or two, um, and the dogs themselves. Um, so, and for me, my, my first priority is, um, my team and that that's human and canine, our cert, our work dogs. So I have to learn no emergency veterinary care that I take very seriously. Um, and you know, general cuts, scrapes, rashes, whatever hydration of the team. I'm, I'm basically our glorified safety officer. Um, and then our next priority is, um, anyone that we're rescuing or evacuating. So I might have to do some technical rescue, field amputations, um, crush syndrome, things like that. Um, deal with our canines, like I said, or any hazmat. Um, basically we are self-sufficient with several hundreds of thousands of tons of gear, including boats to go out the door to any kind of hazard. And, um, uh, yeah, no, I love it. In fact, we, there's an IMAX movie out on, on, that's mostly about, uh, one of our search dogs in our team, um, that, uh, has been pretty interesting for the most part for us. Most of our work is, um, hurricane relief. Um, especially cause of hurricane, uh, season, but there's all, there's no earthquake season <laughs> no. and, uh, you know, who knows, you know, when, and there's tornadoes and things like that, what we might be called, but all hazards, technical rescue searches and things like that. Um, I've been deployed several times, um, with task force one, um, domestically and internationally. Um, I've been in Haiti. I've been, uh, we were just in Bermuda or sorry, the Bahamas, um, Puerto Rico, which is the U S but we were there for both hurricane Maria and, um, we were just there for her- the recent hurricane. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been fun. I love it. Cause you have to really think it's true austere medicine. My hair gets all crazier than it already is. Um, and it's really a great solid, solid guys, but it's, it's FEMA backed fire department sponsored. So I'm, I'm a civilian member, part of Miami-Dade fire rescue, our urban search and rescue team. 
beautiful. Now, with the hurricanes, obviously, we have you know a huge amount of flooding with many of our areas. Do you see more um, waterborne snake bites like moccasins when the floods come in? You know, it gets really interesting, you know, and for Hurricane Florence, which was a 28 day deployment, um, there was an article that came out and it said like it had a hurricane and there's a giant snake. I think it was an anaconda coming out of the mouth or the eye of the hurricane. And it's like killer snakes displaced, you know, from the hurricane. And it's like. It's not Sharknado it's, or what I call <laughs> snake cane. You're not going to suddenly have snakes flying around. However, it is clinically proven that before and after a storm, there are more envenomations. And the reason for that is before a storm, we're prepping, we're out. They know what's going on, that something's going to happen. And they are either getting to safety, they're flooded from their homes, or they're following food, Right. The mouse that, or the rat that scurries under a pile of siding and then you go to pick up aluminum siding to put up your window shutters and you don't look and you're, you're in the, we're in the snake's backyard. The snake's not in our backyard. Um, so that our worlds just collide and so they end up having more snake bites. It's not necessarily because they're all floating around. Um, snakes are great swimmers. They absolutely get away from us if they can. Gotcha. Um, so the snake bites with storms are not because they're floating around or being flung around in the wind. It's because of our interactions before and after a storm. Right. Just a really shitty time to get bitten by a snake because you're not going to get much help with the uh, EMS system or hospitals by that point. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then moving on to television. Um, I know you are kind of like the the safety guy almost for Kings of Pain. So how did that come about? <laughs> so yeah, to TV and everything's been interesting because I've also been doing uh, um, Shark Week for the a couple of the episodes for the past couple of years with some of my Fireboat guys with Miami-Dade. But uh, Kings of Pain came about right at the same time some uh, production company approached me about having my own TV show um, just about EMS stuff that I'm kind of working on, but, um, I got a phone call and part was, you know, multiple references, but Sean Bush, who's a, who is Venom doc, he had Venom ER. Yeah. Um, they had this TV show idea and he couldn't do it. He's like, who you need is that can, that knows the knowledge and can, can talk about it and do it. Um, that actually lives. It is this Ben Abo guy. So they contacted me and we we're chit chatting and, then it happened. Um, I just had to make sure that it wasn't a certain other YouTube guy or gal. Um, but and it started as they they basically said they're like, look, we need someone for safety, obviously, but they need someone to help guide them and approve things. Number one, they need um, to make sure that their knowledge is correct. Number two, they need somebody that if something happens can take care of it. And can explain on camera about what's going on between the wildlife and the venom and and things like that um, and would be willing to go out into the wild. There's a lot of specialists that can treat great th- and do great medicine in the hospital. But I'm I'm an EMS guy. I'm an austere wilderness EMS guy. So it's actually been really perfect. Um, and it's been fun. We did eight episodes. Um 
we did eight episodes for season one, and hopefully we'll get season two. Um, but Kings of Pain has been very interesting. Um, I, I like to tell everybody but that there's um, there's at least six cameras on me, because if the camera adds 10 pounds, um, <laughs> people that there's six cameras on me. But... Uh, yeah, it's cool. You know, and people are like, well, it's so fake. No, these guys are legit. Like, I'm help fact-checking for a lot of things, but they're pretty smart guys. Um, and we're doing some scientific-based stuff. And the um, we're really doing some myth-busting and really kind of challenging some traditional things and hearsay and anecdotes. You know, the plural of anecdotes is not data. It's just more anecdotes. So, um it's been pretty cool and learning how things are edited. I, not until I see it on TV, do I know what they're actually going to play? Um, but it's, it's been a fun process and being known as the background guy. Cause everyone apparently is having a great time seeing my facial expressions when they get bit or stung. <laughs> <laughs> Cause they're, they're deliberately getting bitten or stung by various creatures around the planet to show it, if they can take the pain and and obviously the effects yeah, after so, that. So the basis of the show is there was this bug PhD guy, Justin Schmidt, and he wrote a book and he he got he stung himself by uh, like a thousand insects around the world, and he rated it on a scale of one to four and was pretty much poetic describing the pain he went through. Not the most scientific. Um, you know, an N of one, a scale to four. Um, but it really set the stage for things. So we are broadening it. We are, we are doing a scale and averaging at least two people. Um, we are talking about damage, duration, intensity, and describing it. Um, but we're not just doing insects. We're also doing marine life and other wildlife. Um, and damage things. And it's pretty cool because, you know, we get into some real historical things. For instance, um, a week or two ago, well, before Christmas break for it, we had the uh, rove beetle, which is this blister beetle. And one of the theories that really makes sense is that this was one of the 10 plagues. So the advertisements were talking about a biblical, you know, hurt. And these little stupid little beetles – um, their, their blood and their lymph and stuff is that they can also spray is a vesicant. It is a blister agent, but it doesn't do it right away. So people would like see a bug on them and they slap it. And then 24 hours later, they suddenly start getting these boils and blisters and it's eating away at the skin. Right. Huh. So, but these things like to also feed on decaying reptiles. So if you go, let's talk about the 10 plagues a moment, right? So the 10 plagues included the frogs that came with tons. And after the frogs came what? The locusts. So what if the locusts were actually these kinds of beetles, right, to feed on the things? And what came after the locusts? The boils. <laughs> ah, I see what you're saying. What if the 10 plagues, the that whole process is actually based on in part these beetles 
So, and then chemical warfare is based off of some of what was made with these bugs and these blister beetles. So it's been really neat to kind of see that process and talk to locals and say, well, you need to do this, this, and this, and this is what made it better. This is what made it worse. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see what really happens. Um, so it's, it's been a very fun show. So yeah, so I serve as the venom and wildlife medical expert. Um, and the medical director of the show, um, the episodes that I couldn't be on camera for, I was right behind camera or I was like satellite phone away. And I had trained up one of my venom two officers, Lieutenant Jason Rivera, um, who's an excellent paramedic, um, and running the venom two team. Now he, uh, he was uh, the other guy that uh, we trained up and was on camera. But otherwise, I was always kind of there um, dealing with things and planning things. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. But one more thing before we do. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the State Bike Foundation. Ah, I appreciate that. So um, two years ago at uh, Venom Week, um, a couple of us, you know, venom experts from around the world, we got together. So the Snakebite Foundation, which is the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation, um, which Asclepius is the proper medical symbol. It's the snake on the rod. Um, and what we are, are we are a group um, from all different backgrounds, paramedic, physician, toxicologist, bench researchers, public health epidemiological marketing. And so we're really trying to solve this snake bite cr crisis. Um, in the U S only five to six people die per year, but there's permanent pain and disability around the world. People die every few minutes and it's just catastrophic. And you can really make a big difference with proper anti-venom, proper education of the public and proper education of healthcare workers with, with, and, and really do justice because like even if someone doesn't die, they can't provide, they can't afford the health care, they can't afford, they can't work anymore, so they can't take care of their family. Um, so we're really um, focusing on those different areas, especially places like Guinea um, and Benin and Kenya, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, a lot, and everywhere, but mostly around those places, Congo to really make or break a difference. And it's it's been an amazing journey and it's been, I mean, we've been sound, helping sat, save countless lives and do some amazing research and really prove, you know, the WHO came out and they said that um, snake bite envenomation is now a class A neglected tropical disease. Oh, really? And this is huge. This is like you're finally recognizing that people are really getting screwed up. And this is a public health crisis. This is a wildlife crisis. And there's all these different factors and anthropologically and sociologically and economically that, that feed into whether these people are going to live or die. But also what about their livelihoods? Will they be able to continue or their family? So – then there are people that came, some very skilled people like David Worrell and, and all that came out with this, you know, roadmap to success. The, what's the road, WHO roadmap to fighting this neglecting tropical disease? Education, anti-venom. Well, great. It's, you know, it's, it's a, 
a theoretical roadmap that doesn't just have to be more physicians. And so we're at, we've been out there proving that proper education of basic life support and some low cost equipment and supplies could really make or break a difference in these regions. And we're also te helping test new antivenoms that don't even need to be refrigerated. There are a lot of people that are dying before they even get to care. So, so we're this group taking a multifaceted approach. Um, ba basically, you know, we're this international team of scientists and clinicians trying to chain break that cycle of bad snakebite outcomes, and we do it all with innovation and research, clinical medicine, bedside education and culturally sensitive education-based public health initiatives. Um, and we really, I mean, they kill or maim an underestimated 600,000 people every year worldwide, 600,000, and it's probably an underestimate. Um, and at less than 5% of that number even, ever get antivenom. So if we can get better stuff out there and better care and better education, awesome. And that's what we're all about. Beautiful. And people can donate to help to that cause? Yeah. Uh, people can donate. Um, our website, pretty easy, snakebitefoundation.org. Um, we're on Twitter as our handles, uh, snakebite911. Um, we're, we're very vocal trying to dispel myths and rumors and and all and there's some great uh information about the vicious cycle of snake bites um animations and all on our website and you can donate there um and kind of see the different innovative things that we're doing and uh prolonged field care and things like that it's been it's been great the three of us Jordan Benjamin, uh, co-founder, and he's the director. Nick Brandehoff, uh, one of the founding docs, and I, we, the three of us were just in Guinea this summer, um, and we were treating a large number of snake bites. Um, and there was one doctor, but everyone else is just, we're just training things. We taught them airway management. We taught them suctioning, neurological assessment, capnography, um, to help make the decision tree because, you know, they get bit by a cobra and they're paralyzed. They're never going to make it to get antivenom, but we can do good patient care, airway protection, give them antivenom and they can go back to playing and working and doing whatever. It's, it's been a great journey already. Um, and we're really making a big difference. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think to, just to, to underline that if, the paramedics in America with all the education, all the funding that we have are still so, you know, undereducated on snake bites and, you know, the entire world of, of snakes and envenomation. Then I can only imagine the, the lack of education in some of the, the countries around the world that don't have the support that we do. Yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's been, it's been great. So definitely snakebitefoundation.org. Check it out. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, is there a book that you love to recommend? Now, it could be what we've discussed today or something completely different. The Wilderness EMS textbook edited by Seth Collins Hawkins. Um, for one, and um, the book by Tammy out of Australia, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly of Paramedicine. Those two books. 
Good, the bad, and the ugly of paramedicine. Beautiful. All right, same question, but a movie. Everyone should see Airplane. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a classic movie, especially when yeah. the, the old lady's getting frisked and the, the terrorists are going through all their weapons. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, fun fact, um, the physician on um, on the plane is that Leslie Nielsen plays is Dr. Rumack as in Rumac nomogram. So Dr. Rumac is a real person. He's a toxicologist out of Denver and he invented the, the guide that w- for acute Tylenol toxicity that we come up with. Oh, um, really? We help treat people. And apparently I was told that the guys that wrote the movie airplane apparently like lived across the street or grew up from, this real Dr. Rumack, and they were so infatuated with him that they named the character after him. That is a fun fact. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I think that's just incredible. Uh, Dr. Brandehoff told me that. Um, I've never met actually Dr. Rumack, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, then the same question again, but for a documentary. Is there one that you love? Um,. Uh, the Venom interviews. <laughs> Brilliant. Venom interviews. And then you said you mentioned one with uh, Miami Dade in it earlier. Yeah, the um, well, there's an IMAX right now. Oh, yeah. So that count. Yeah, that's documentary. Duh, Ben. Come on, man. Um, uh, Super Power Dogs, which uh, is an IMAX at select theaters right now already. Um, you can see the trailers at. Uh, superpowerdogs.com it's actually narrated by chris evans captain america oh fantastic perfect all right well then next question is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders physicians and military of the world uh yes will smith and or uh seth hawkins the the famous will smith or a different will smith uh, well, he is famous and one of my best friends, um, but he's not the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Okay. Uh, Will Will Smith is is uh, the better looking military North Mountain Man version of me. He's a paramedic physician up in Wyoming. He's the medical director for Jackson Hole and the Grand Tetons. He's also the medical director for DARPA and the National Park Service. And army bases globally, he's just, yeah. And he, the three of us plus one other are actually all the only directors for the Wilderness EMS Medical Directors course. Um, so the two of them are amazing lec- teachers, amazing mentors, amazing thinkers. Um, we don't like to just think outside the box. We just want to get rid of the box. Beautiful. I like that too. I really do. Fantastic. All right, then the very last question before we talk about where we can find you and your work online, what do you do to decompress when you are not working as a physician or keeping your dog quiet during an interview? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I love music, whether it's just listening. For the most, ha- most part, you can find me decompressing by 
Um, I always have, whether I'm on deployment or I'm kayaking or I'm in my car, I have my hammock, so I'll toss that up between a couple trees randomly um, and just relax. Anything to do with music, I'll decompress that way. But And one of my favorite pastimes is just traveling and just culture indulgence. You have any favorite places around the world? I love Ireland. I love Belgium. I love Madrid um, and Spain in general. Um, those are my my tops. And bit like Western Canada, it was just oh so beautiful. Yeah, world is a beautiful place. Yes, it is. All right. So then, very last question, so I can let you go because it is ten o'clock at night now. Um, where can people find? you online and then we'll also underline where they can find the snakebite foundation again so the the snakebite foundation is snakebitefoundation.org org um and basically stuff for me um i took down my website because i'm kind of just reorganizing it a bit but basically my my handle for most things is benabo b-e-n-a-b-o the last name being the blood types nice and easy um, so that's my Twitter handle. That's my Instagram. I'm Ben without borders on Facebook. Um, and then I am all and Instagram and then I, uh, also chronicles of an EMS physician. That's, uh, I've been starting on, um, on Instagram, trying to document that kind of stuff. But, uh, otherwise just Google, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, my ex-girlfriend's mom, is Swedish uh, said, I don't understand boundaries. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, no, I mean borders. Like you'll go to a wedding in Ireland and then say, Hey, will you come from Sweden and meet me in Spain? Like all this. And I'm, that's where I came up with Ben without borders. So um, I'm kind of all over the place and the, my own website will be up um, again soon enough. And that'll be benabo.com or uh, Ben without borders. Beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you so much. I know, uh, you know, when you're up in Gainesville next, we need to try and meet up and actually grab a coffee or something. But I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I know we're kind of squeezing this in in the evening, but I was dying to get you on here because I will totally admit as a medic, I need a lot more education when it comes to snakes. And uh, I'm sure that many people listening have gleaned a lot of information from this. Yeah, thanks. I I appreciate the the invite and finally getting to be able to do it and spend the time to do it and do it right um and uh, absolutely anytime i really look forward to getting together um in person and uh we'll see what else we can come up with and kind of motivate and do around <laughs>